Well, good morning. Good to see each of you. We welcome you. Add to Matt's welcome this morning. It's great to have each of you. And I'm going to invite you to open up to 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, you should find one in front of you. We try to replace those every week or redistribute them. And uh, if you're using one of the, the Bibles that we provide, we are on page 1014. really wish they would have done that when I was a young boy. I always had to go to the, the beginning and find out where these books were. Um, we don't do that all the time here, but sometimes that page number helps. We live in an exciting time as believers. This, of course, a looming election and you can hear it in the markets. You sit for a cup of coffee in a coffee shop or you just speak to people on your street or in the community and you'll get a wide spectrum of emotions and you'll get indifference, you'll get anger, you'll get cynicism and you'll have a lot of fear. And Peter, in this letter, he is calling us to be distinct from the world. He's actually showing us what does faith look like in the middle of a hostile culture. And what a great time for us not to drink into the emotion of an unbelieving world, but actually example to them the confidence, the rejoicing that we have in Jesus Christ. Have you ever had an experience that has changed your entire perspective on life? And I think we go through many of those, but... There are some that sort of rise to the surface that this particular experience changed my entire view, at least at that point in my life, my entire view on things. I remember as a very young boy, I lost my parents on the boardwalk in Ocean City, New Jersey. And I'm certain it was careless parenting, right? (laughs) That in no way was I distracted by the toys and the candy and made my own path. But all of a sudden, those things didn't matter anymore. These little trinkets no longer mattered when I looked up. And mom and dad were nowhere to be found. And I remember as a young boy, the hollowness and the desperation in my heart. And it changed my whole perspective on something I really hadn't considered before. And that was the safety and security that the presence of my parents provided. You have more shaping experiences. I was just talking with Josh yesterday about... The time we were heading north in Zambia on the Great North Road, and really in the middle of nowhere, there's this Great North Road that moves forward, and Isaiah had a seizure, and at that time we didn't know if they were life-threatening or not. And he turned, stopped breathing, he turned ashen gray. Josh and I both remember, I'm climbing up on top of our truck and getting into the roof rack and the luggage, and I can't find uh, the medicine that we slip under his tongue to stop the seizures, the convulsions, and we thought for sure that they're on the side of the Great North Road in Zambia that we had lost our son. And he even shared with me yesterday, he just remembers sitting there praying, praying, and crying, and then he couldn't pray anymore because of the emotion that took over. And in that sense, really, Romans says, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us, doesn't he? But that is a shaping experience. Do you know the most radical, most staggering experience possible that is intended to shape our perspective on this entire life is addressed in first peter and it's called new birth being born again being converted being regenerate those are all words 
we use to talk about this experience, this new life in Christ, it totally changes our perspective on everything. We would just say it simply like this. The Gospel changes everything. That's exactly where 1 Peter is moving. For Christians, new birth, new life in Christ, a living hope. That's in contrast to a dead hope. We discussed that last week. Our hope is not in futile things. Our hope is not on a temporary circumstance or on a futile experience. Our hope is placed in a living Christ and therefore is alive and eternal. And that changes our perspective on everything. And notice what Peter includes. That changes your perspective on suffering. See, the Gospel changes everything. That changes your perspective on being treated unjustly, as Peter talks about, on submission to authority, on family tensions, on our response to government, on being hunted down by an invisible and ravenous man-eating lion who is the devil. See, the Gospel changes everything. And if it changes everything... That will be seen in our conduct. That's where Peter's moving. It's not just that we subscribe to this creed or this confession and we can debate about it and memorize it. No, it actually has an effect on how I live tomorrow morning, on how I interact with my family this afternoon, on how I love this church unconditionally. That's the effect the gospel has. The gospel changes our perspective on everything. Look at uh, verse 1. Look at, up, look at uh, how Peter refers to his audience. And some of this will be by way of review. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Though Peter may be referring to a, a historical event, uh, there are reasons to believe there's no definite article in the Greek before dispersion. So it's not that there was a dispossession of their land and a deliberate moving of these people to these smaller Roman provinces. But it could just be they are scattered because of the Trinitarian work of God. He's actually going to mention that. The Father, the Spirit, Jesus Christ. And because of the work, because the Father, by His great mercy, caused us to be born again, therefore you are spiritual strangers. You're spiritual foreigners. You're spiritual exiles. You are spiritual pilgrims. What does that mean? Well, people that don't really belong. They're not, they're not really at home. So everybody else laughs at a very crude joke, and you don't. You don't belong. You're odd. Everybody else uses those words when they're angry, but you don't. You're a stranger. You don't really fit in, and that makes other people feel awkward. You're a, strange, you're a spiritual exile because, because you woke up this morning and gathered with God's people to sing about Jesus Christ and blood and an eternal life. That's odd. You're a spiritual foreigner. You're a stranger. And the more a culture degenerates, the more and more Peter's letter is a needed exhortation for both you and me. First Peter is a call for Christians to live out their faith in what is at times a hostile culture 
while remaining confidently focused on the full implications of the gospel. I'll explain that statement in just a second. First, Peter is a call for Christians to live out their faith in what is at times a hostile culture while remaining confidently focused on the full implications of the gospel. What does that mean? What does that mean for us today? First of all, our primary citizenship is not the United States of America. For some of us, that just, we even wince when we hear that. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. Our first and primary guide is not the Constitution of the United States with its Bill of Rights. Our first and primary guide, our final authority, is God's Word. You'd be surprised how many American Christians don't really operate that way. God's Word sits over the Constitution of the United States of America and God's Word judges it. Our King does not function from an Oval Office or live on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Our King is sitting at the right hand of the Father waiting for His enemies to become His footstool and He will return. And that King is called the King of all kings. The Lord of all lords. There is no contest. There is no equal. That's why we live differently. That's why we interact with each other differently. That's why we can love our enemies for people who have such a hard time even loving other Christians. But these are the realities that Peter's going to point us to and focus us on. You know, that confession saying that that that's not our primary citizenship. I mean, we believe with Paul, Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That confession to say those things makes us spiritual foreigners in a land that more and more is not saying those things. So how do we live according to our identity in Christ as temporary residents? First, we hope differently And second, we live differently. By the way, believing these things, embracing the truth that our primary citizenship in heaven should make us the best citizens of this country. Not second-rate citizens. Because we're actually going to model the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ among a lost and dying people. First of all, born-again Christians hope differently. And this is just a quick review. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, we live in this moment. We have to wake up and we have to be good stewards of today. And we're called to be faithful stewards today in the very moments that have been given to us. But our motivation for living here as temporary residents is not rooted in today's circumstances. So So let me explain. We've all gathered together and all your circumstances are different. Some of you have very lovely and pleasant and exciting circumstances. And some of you have very dark, 
in hurtful and painful circumstances. But you know, our hope is rooted in neither. It doesn't matter at which point your circumstances change. That is not where your hope, your living hope, is rooted. If it's rooted in a in a particular set of circumstances, that then becomes a type of God. And that will dictate your emotions as they go up and down. But if you have a living hope, something that is fixed and sure and guarded, then you will be able to set your hope fully on that. Notice the future orientation of Peter's encouragement. Look at verse 4. Two, that forward, that, that, that future orientation to an inheritance. Well, this is basically the full implications of the gospel as new creations in a new creation. We know this is heavenly because of the description. Look at verse 4. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But also because it explicitly gives it security and location. It is kept in heaven for you. Look at verse 5. A salvation, look at the next description, ready to be revealed. So we still wait with confident expectation on the full realities of the gospel. Look at verse 9. The outcome of your faith. But I believed, yes, but that doesn't deliver you from all difficulty and trouble in this world. There is an outcome uh, I love this. The, it's the end attained or the closing act. That's what that word means. And the closing act hasn't happened yet. But I'm already a believer. Great. So then you have a living hope that you can set your hope fully on in the grace of the gospel. Look at verse 21. Your faith and hope are in God. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ, an already accomplished work. The object of our hope, same person, same work, but it looks forward to a complete fulfillment. So faith and hope. So children and young people, Tuesday is November, which means the next month is December, which means on the 25th, what happens? What happens? Well, this year we're going to gather together as a church and worship. Isn't that awesome? And it is awesome. Uh, but, but when we think Christmas, what are we thinking? Right? Gifts. Now let me, let me, how many of you remember all the gifts you got last December 25th? All the gifts. You can just rattle them off. Be careful. I may call on you. I'm not trying to intimidate you and scare you. I just want truth here. Can you remember every single gift you got? Well done. You got, you got none, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay? How many, are you still hoping in that gift? I mean, children, are you hoping, oh, I just can't wait for the gifts I got last year? That doesn't even make sense. Hope has to do with what? Future. So now, now this December, have you ever tried to use that parental psychology? Kids, this year, things are down. You're, you're probably not going to get anything. Right? Any other parents do that? You know, you can expect one gift. You know, the ceiling for each gift is $25 per child. And you kind of do this parent psychology so they're not underwhelmed on Christmas Day. It's not like we're lying. We really meant that. But then when Christmas Day comes, the tree is filled with gifts underneath. So our kids will hear that now and they'll be like, that's not really accurate. 
You know, so, but they're hoping for something. We already, we've already received their Christmas lists. Okay? We hope in something future. That's what Peter is saying. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice. Are you rejoicing? By the way, you can rejoice with tears, by the way. And I don't mean happy tears. I mean sad tears. They're rejoicing mixes well with grieving. It's some of the purest joy you can experience. And if you're not rejoicing, can I ask you a question? Where's your hope? What are you really hoping in? Because just the fact that we showed up at 1510 East Phillips Avenue this morning doesn't automatically mean our hope is in God. So what are you hoping in? And is that hope producing rejoicing? See, we, we rejoice not because this life is without trouble or trial or difficulty or suffering, but we rejoice because that suffering is not wasted by God and He's actually allowing the flames of His furnace to accomplish something. This is what He's accomplishing. Look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, He's testing your faith, not tempting. Two totally different words. God tested Abraham so that he could succeed. Satan tempts so that you will fail. The end is totally different. God tests your faith. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found. This, this is the reason for trouble and trial and suffering and the fiery furnace, so that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. This Gospel that Peter talks about and refers to in more than a dozen different ways in just the first chapter, this gospel changes everything. It changes your perspective and it changes your affection so that you love someone that you have never seen. And Peter knows this because Jesus asked him three different times, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Is that response anywhere in your heart? And I fear that some of us are still trying to love religion. We're still trying to stay in love with religious form or structures or schedules. Religion and relationship are two completely different things. Do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Look at verse 10. Well, concerning this salvation, this living hope, this gospel that changes everything, including your affections for someone you've never seen, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Prophesied about the grace. There's his theme again. 
inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter is sinking this good news, this gospel, back into the Old Testament. This is not a new message. It's more fully revealed, but it is the same promise of a Redeemer and a Rescuer, a sacrificial Lamb given for the forgiveness of our sins. He calls on the Old Testament prophets, the Holy Spirit, the New Testament apostles, and angels. Isaiah, Zechariah, Micah, just a few of the prophets who prophesied Christ's incarnation or entry into Jerusalem or His suffering. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Right? They never saw the fulfilled prophecies. They made those prophecies. Now we get to look back and say, it, it happened exactly as they said it would. Predictive prophecy is an acid test on whether this is the word of the Lord or not. They weren't serving themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news. So the apostles come along and now they preach the good news. The apostles and the evangelists. They preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The point of mentioning angels is not simply to incite curiosity about the angelic world, but to highlight the magnificence of the salvation which has been given to us. Angels, here's the idea, angels set their heart upon this. They, they desire it. Jesus Himself said that angels in heaven rejoice over one repentant sinner. He's implying angelic attentiveness to earthly happenings. The angels are looking into this and desiring this and they're seeing the salvation. But remember that Jesus took on the form of humanity to save brothers. He didn't take on the form of the angels. So how do we live according to our identity in Christ here and now as temporary residents? First, we hope differently. But second, we also live differently. Look at verse 13. And there are four primary exhortations as Peter instructs believers how they are to live within an unbelieving society. Here are the four before we read. Hope, holiness, fear, and love. Hope. How do I, how do I live how, how do I live consistent with my identity in Christ among an unbelieving culture? Hope, holiness, fear, and love. Verse 13, set your hope fully on God's grace. Therefore, he's going to use these two images. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Okay, mind for action, sober-minded. You're thinking, what are you placing your mind and your heart on? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The full implications of the gospel. The full reward. The full benefit. Conformity starts in our thinking. Doesn't it? And our mind can easily be pointed down a particular line. For example, I can tell you not to think of the number eight. Whatever you do, don't think of the number eight. Okay? Think of any other number except what number? No, don't think of that number. Okay? 
So, but what are we doing? We're simply placing our minds on a particular number, even when I'm saying don't do that. Okay, we're thinking about it. And you're still thinking about eight, some of you. By not trying to think about it, you're thinking about what number? Eleven. No, eight. You're thinking about, right? So we get our minds down that, and we are to set our hope fully. We're going to be sober-minded. We're going to set our minds, prepare our minds, and be sober-minded. Conformity starts in our thinking. Notice the images Peter uses. Preparing your minds for action. Some of you are holding a New King James Version or a King James Version, and it says, girding up the loins of your mind. That really is kind of the, the picture that is given. It was the longer skirt or outer garment that's, that the men wore. And if they were going to do hard work or run or battle, they would pull that up and tuck it into their belt. So it was like a shorter skirt. They would gird up their loins. Have you ever heard the term, even in modern day warfare, they were girded for battle. That's what it means. Okay, we would say, you know, probably more of a familiar idiom here would be, you know, let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. Right, we understand that one. We do not understand the girding the loins thing. Rolling up your sleeves. Or in Colorado, take off your outer shell. Take off the layers you don't need. Get freedom of movement. Stop, stop restricting yourself. Now do that with your mind. Let your mind be free to focus on future events. Focus on the magnificent salvation that has been gifted to you. Meditate upon those things. Sober-minded, alert, not fuzzy-minded, not an induced chemical numbness, but completely in control of where every thought Moves. Don't let anything distract you or numb your thinking. See, living for the future with clear-mindedness, with sober-mindedness, with a readiness is foundational. It's fundamental to Peter's thinking. How do you prepare your mind for action? You're self-controlled in your thinking. Karen Jobes wrote in her commentary, quote, If the Christians to whom Peter writes had in fact been expelled from Rome, their personal experience may have induced a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness common to those who experience disruptive events beyond their own control. Furthermore, since wealth and inheritance were most often vested in land in the first century world, a displacement from one's homeland meant that whatever property one hoped to inherit would be of uncertain benefit or already a loss. But even if the Christians to whom Peter writes have not been physically displaced, their new life as Christians affected their social status. It may even have jeopardized their inheritance as members of pagan families, much as some Muslim, Hindu, or Jewish families still today will disinherit a family member who converts to Christianity. Such experiences may understandably result in feelings of hopelessness. Peter, however, points out that these Christians, who are foreigners with respect to their place of residence, have been given new birth into a new family by the word of God the Father. They're displaced. They're hopeless. Regardless of whether it was an official displacement and dispossessing of land or whether it was by nature that they have trusted Christ in the midst of a pagan society, they're foreigners. They have very little hopes of procuring land, of serving in high-ranked positions, And Peter writes to encourage them while you're facing this persecution, 
while you're facing this hopelessness, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed. You're not living for this time period. This will affect how we handle disappointments in life. Because we're not just living for this life. Now you set your hope fully on the grace which will be revealed. Secondly, the second exhortation, look at verse 14, is be holy as God is holy. Right? Born again Christians hope differently. Born again Christians live differently. Okay, we set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed. Now we will be holy as God is holy. As obedient children, verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What does Peter ground this command in? The assumption that they are what? Obedient children. Remember what the Lord said when He was with His disciples? If you love Me, what? Keep My commandments. You are My friends, He says, John 15, verse 14, if you do whatsoever I command you. Because you're obedient children, an expression donating conversion, look down at verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And then he grounds the command, not just in the assumption that they are born again, they're regenerate, obedient children, and having have purified their souls, but he roots it in the character of God. As He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Well, what does that mean? Because I've heard a lot of sermons that run to this portion of 1 Peter and it becomes simply a behavioral checklist for what holiness is. And there are holiness conferences and holiness movements and, and, and the whole attention seems to be on external behavior. Now, conduct is clearly what Peter is getting at here. But what Peter does not do is Peter does not provide a checklist so that we can hit all the boxes and say, look at me, I'm holier than you. Because, by the way, you only got 75% of the check boxes. Peter doesn't provide a checklist. Jesus summed it up like this. Because to be holy means Christians must conform their thinking and behavior to God's character. What does that look like? Jesus said, love God and love others. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. Well, I can do that checklist. That's one big box. Right? Love God. And the proof that I love God is what? I love others. The character of God was revealed through the covenant He made with His people, what we often call the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, that reveal in kind of shorthand form the character of God. I mean, we could just run through that. Holy conduct. Distinct conduct. That's the idea. So God is distinct. He was holy even before sin entered the world. So holiness is more than just sinlessness. Holiness is absolute distinctiveness. So how, how do we live a distinct life reflecting the character of God? 
Let's just go through the Decalogue. Do you have any other gods in your life right now? If so, you're like the rest of the world. You're not distinct. Have you formed or allowed an idol in your life? Do you use the name of the Lord in an empty, worthless manner? Do you set apart the worship of the Lord as distinct or have you let lesser things take first place? Do you regularly miss corporate worship for other activities? Do you honor your father and mother? It says, do not commit adultery. Do you hate adultery as God hates adultery in thought, pictures, television series, movies, and in real life? Do not steal. Have you taken what's not yours? Information, test answers, videos, material things. Do not bear false witness. Are you honest, trustworthy, and true? Do not covet what others have, material things, relationships, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. How can you really love your neighbor and seek his good if all you're doing is being jealous of what they have? That's distinctiveness. God is distinct. And of course, when they came and they tried to entrap Jesus, they said, which is the greatest commandment? Of course, the people that were asking that knew the Decalogue. They also knew the 613 laws. They understood Leviticus. He simply said this, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. You be holy in all your conduct because the Lord your God is holy. Another simple way to put that is, does your life reflect the Lord Jesus Christ? So what does the Father's holiness look like? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. You're going to see, and Peter's going to draw a connection to this, that he suffered, he went as a lamb to its shears, he didn't open his mouth, he didn't retaliate, he didn't seek revenge, and he did that as a sacrificial offering, yes, but Peter's also going to connect this, he did this as an example for you to follow. Are you distinct like that? Are you holy? Peter will further explain the principle that is to shape their self-controlled living thinking, and that's reverential fear, verses 17 to 21. Born-again believers can address the judge of the universe as our Father. That's an amazing thought. Look at verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, by the way, very fearful statement, according to each one's deeds. He's going to call into question every person's conduct. He just talked about, be holy in all your conduct. And now we're calling out to God as Father. He's the judge of the whole earth. He's impartial. Therefore, what? Conduct yourselves with, with fear. As spiritual foreigners, as spiritual exiles, as spiritual pilgrims, you conduct yourselves with fear. Because Peter will say this in 1 Peter 4, verse 5. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Notice the motivation of living in awe of God. First, God is judge and he judges with absolute impartiality. This drives us to a healthy fear in how I live today for him. Secondly, we have been ransomed, purchased with a price. 
We have been delivered from our former life, which was empty. We were rescued by the precious blood of Christ. We will stand and give an account to God, not for our sins, but for how we have lived this life for Him. This is cause both for rejoicing and for holy living. We do this with reverential fear. The fourth and final of these exhortations is love genuinely and deeply. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Peter grounds this command into having purified your souls and since you have been born again. Notice the description of this kind of love. It's sincere. It's real, unhypocritical, without conditions or bias. By the way, when you experience that kind of love, you want to be around it more. Sometimes churches do not desire fellowship with one another because they come into the same caustic, critical attitudes they face every other day of the week. But when this kind of love starts to express itself within the body, it's attractive. It'll actually create a desire for more. It's brotherly. This is a love for brothers and sisters in Christ. Familial love. Love for the family of God. Love for the Christian community. It's earnest, intense, fervent, deep. It's stretched to the limits. It's from a pure heart. It's clean. It's guiltless. Its motives are pure. And God expects His church to be filled with people who love one another like this. I want, to, I want you to look with me then at his quote in verse 24. Let's start with 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed. How can you love like that? Well, you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For, now he's going to quote Isaiah 40. Isaiah wrote to who? He wrote to a people that were facing a looming Babylonian captivity. And they knew it. And they were about to be taken into interesting exile. They were going to be very real foreigners, dispossessed of land through this Babylonian captivity. It was still about 50 to 80 years away, but Isaiah is writing as if they are already captives. And what he's doing is he writes to these nearing captives, these exiles, He's saying, listen, but God's promises are sure. What you're about to face is temporal. It's transient. But, but God's word is promised to deliver and rescue. There is a future hope. This is exactly what Isaiah is doing in Isaiah 40. He's bringing them back to the character and the promises of God. So it is not by accident that Peter quotes this portion. Now look at it in verse 24. For all flesh is like grass. See, the object here is not that we just think about grass dying. The object here is that all humanity in God's eyes is temporal. And all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of the Lord, His promise of a rescuer or redeemer, His promise to keep you, His promise to guard your inheritance, His promise to sustain you in suffering, but the word of the Lord Remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. They're connected. 
Now to spiritual exiles, like those entering into a Babylonian captivity, you can set your heart fully on this grace that will be revealed in the last time. You can live a distinct, holy life. You can conduct yourselves down here with fear, with reverential awe, because you can call out to the Father who judges impartially, but He is your Father. And you can also show this kind of love to other people. So how did these words, in conclusion, how did these words comfort Israel in the face of a Babylonian captivity? How did they comfort dispersed Christians in a Roman province? And how should these words encourage us? First, the power of God is contrasted with the power of nations and their idols. Babylon, Rome, and by extension, America. And this serves as an encouragement because though these dominant nations seem eternal, they are not. Though they have, they have a mission that is ungodly in many cases, God's purposes will stand. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. Secondly, the contrast between what is transitory and what is permanent serves as an encouragement. You have to understand, these people that are dispersed, these people that aren't getting land, aren't getting titles, and all the glitter of the armor of Rome and the power of its military and its high government status, it seems like their situation was hopeless. And yet there's a contrast between what is transitory and what is permanent. And this is God's Word to us today. That's what the Gospel does. That's where our hope is set. It is set on something that we have been partakers of, but something that will be fully revealed when Jesus Christ returns. Next Sunday we'll observe the Lord's Supper. We say this almost every time. We eat this bread and we drink this cup in remembrance until He comes. Peter writes this letter to people who are living between Christ's first coming and His second coming. And there's a lot here that we need to respond to. Where in our life have we stopped hoping in the right thing? Stopped loving? Stopped living distinctly? Stopped having this reverential fear and awe of God? Born again believers hope differently and they live differently in a hostile culture.